Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week, we welcome Dr. Georges Benjamin, President of the American Public Health Association, on the pandemic, disparities, and the crisis in public health. Public health has been so undervalued and underfinanced for many years that the money that did go out built one-time capacity and that long-time capacity. Lori Robertson joins us from factcheck.org, and we end with a bright idea, improving health and well-being in everyday lives. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. Our guest represents over 25,000 members whose organization states it's the only one that has the ability to influence federal policy to improve the public's health. He's a physician who's been leading the American Public Health Association for 20 years. Dr. George Benjamin oversees the push by APHA to make America the healthiest nation in one generation. But there are many challenges. COVID, of course, being one of the most devastating. Dr. Benjamin, welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare and congratulations to you in your service and APHA's 150th anniversary. Yeah, it's a great birthday, 150 years of age. <laughs> oh my God. And I have well, to admit, I, I, have I am long. feeling like a relative pup. We just turned 50, so I'm, I'm feeling very youthful. Uh, so, uh, but again, congratulations to you and the entire uh, membership. But let's start with the news that the Center for Disease Control and Prevention Director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky says, they're gonna develop new systems and processes to deliver their science and programs to American people, along with the plan for how CDC should be structured to facilitate public health work. We know this is in the early stages, but share with us the advice that you've offered to CDC on the direction they should head. Well, you know, look, um, the CDC is an amazing organ scientific organization, um, and they do extraordinarily good work. But if you think about it, they in many ways perform like uh, academic institutions, lots of thought, lots of science, and then it takes forever to get the information out. And what we really want them to function at, because they now need to do that in this modern world, much more like an um, emergency preparedness entity. They've got to do fast science that's accurate and timely. They've got to make rapid operational decisions and they need to give good guidance to the public um, as they go forward. And so that means they have to think differently and they have to maybe in many ways be organized differently. And so they're looking at whether or not they can do that um, as one way of trying to improve their performance overall. Well, Dr. Benjamin, uh, another piece of uh, big news is there's a deal in the Senate for an additional $10 billion for the COVID-19 response. But you know, there's still pushback uh, that public health departments need to be more accountable and maybe more transparent for how they've spent the money so far. Do you think this is a legitimate complaint? And is this something that health departments and health directors around the country are working to improve upon? Well, look, we're always um, want to be transparent and responsible for taxpayer funds. And I remind people that governmental public health has enormous accountability and enormous oversight. Every elected official, they meet um, to legislative committees. They have mayors and governors and boards of health they have to be responsible to. So it's not about accountability. Uh, health departments are accountable. But what we have to recognize that a lot of money went out, but a lot of money went out in ways that uh, are difficult to um, not account for, but the timing is everything. And so people know where the money is, but public health has been so undervalued and undersupported, underfinanced for many years that the money that did go out 
built one-time capacity and that long-time capacity. And this new $10 billion agreement is going to help a little bit more, but it's, in many ways, it's really a drop in the bucket of what's needed to give every community the capacity and supports that we need anytime a new health threat enters the community. Well, I think you hit the right point there, the, uh, the woeful underfunding that public health has, uh, has had for, for, for decades. And, uh, but I also wanna talk about something else in that bill or not in that bill, talking about underfunding, is that more money for international vaccine support also continues to be underfunded and it is not in this compromise bill. Isn't it shocking that we're still arguing over the fact that COVID transcends national borders and that it's in our country's best interest to make sure that people all over the globe are vaccinated? Yeah, you know, that's the, that's the real challenge we have here is that we'll take, we're gonna take this $10 billion because we need it and we need it urgently, but we have to get the, the funding for the international um, component of this uh, because there's going to be another variant and that variant is gonna come from somewhere. It may come from out of the country or it may come from somewhere in this country, but this pandemic is not over yet. It is transitioning and we're gonna to need to make sure that we have the adequate resources to do this. You know, Dr. Benjamin, one of the things that we saw throughout this whole period of COVID, and, and that was so difficult uh, to see were some of the uh, attacks and the confrontations, everybody from school board officials to school teachers to public officials. But I saw a study uh, recently that as many as one third of local and state public health officials who left their positions during that uh, first and very tumultuous year of the pandemic reported having been harassed. We haven't been suffering from an overabundance of talent uh, out there in the field already. This has got to make recruiting for open public health positions even tougher. What are you hearing from the field, from your membership and from your people out in the field about how much this has affected being able to bring people into public health? It's going to be a challenge. You know, there was a lot of people that hung on just because they, they had a, a need to help the public. They felt it was important to do this work. But nobody wants to work in a hostile work environment. And in, quite frankly, um, many people now have found themselves in a hostile work environment. And in, the real tragedy in some of these situations is their bosses didn't have their back. And so we've got to do several things. Number one, we absolutely have to reestablish the rule of law. No judge would tolerate the kind of behavior that occurred in some of these town halls in their courtroom. And security officials, police officials, need to stand behind those public officials in those meetings. The public needs to treat them with respect. And of course, we always have to treat the public with respect. So we need to reestablish a thoughtful debates. That doesn't mean people won't get mad. That doesn't mean people won't raise their voices. But it still has to be done in a way that nobody feels threatened. And we have to do that very, very quickly. Because if we don't do that, the next time we have something really bad happen, the people that are best equipped the smartest people in the room, they're not going to be there to help us. And I want to make sure that there's a good public health system for my grandkids. Well, I want, I want to pull the thread on the thought of that we're a divided country. And yet the data suggests that there's a higher mortality rate in counties that voted Republican in the 2020 presidential election where the pandemic guidelines were less likely to be in place compared to the counties that voted Democratic. Is this a case where only in some parts of the United States uh, have an issue of trusting public health? Perhaps we don't have a nationwide crisis, but we have one that's a little more segmented. Well, look, we, we, we have different views um, politically in this country. There's no doubt about that. 
But nobody wants to have the water not safe to drink, the air not safe to breathe, and the food not safe to eat. Nobody wants to get um, infected from an infectious disease. And we have to continue to you know, speak truth to power. And the outcomes that you just talked about uh, are the results that in some communities, uh, we had elected officials, as well as media hosts and uh, other influencers who, quite frankly, gave a lot of misinformation and disinformation. There's, it certainly politically has you know, tracked along red and blue lines, but I just have to say there are some, certainly some um, conservative communities, some Republican communities where those governors and elected officials did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my governor, um, Hogan in Maryland, did the right thing. Governor DeWine did the right thing. Um, but there are communities where people did not do the right thing. They did not follow the science. And we need to, we need to call them out when they do something that's wrong like that. Uh, and then we need to support people that are strongly in support of the evidence and science. That doesn't mean we don't have to listen to the public. And I think far too often people were saying, I want to do the right thing, but I don't want the government to demand that I do the right thing. Um, and so we just got to figure out how we incentivize people differently. But at the end of the day, sometimes you have to put in mandates because if you don't do that, uh, people get sick and people die. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've, we've just got to come to some consensus about how to do that. Um, and we just have to continue to push until we can get our nation back together on a, on a reasonable pathway to improve the public's health. Well, I think, Dr. Benjamin, uh, we're all in agreement that, that we, uh, we yearn for the country having kind of a, a unified voice doesn't all have to have the same opinions, but have, as uh, an op-ed writer in the New York Times said recently, a healthy distance, maybe, between a group like the CDC and our political leaders that would give the agency a chance to very quickly and transparently communicate information to the public, even when it may not be politically convenient. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Do you, do you think there needs to be a sort of separating out of the CDC messaging from the rest of the administration? You know, the, the challenge we have is that um, CDC needs to continue to do this, the good science-based evidence that they do. But we've got to come to the grips with the fact that public health does most of what it does through changing policy. If you're going to change policy, you're going to be in a political arena. That doesn't mean that we need to be politicians per se, but I do think we need to understand political science. And I think we need to improve our risk communication. We need to build those trust relationships before we need the trusting relationships. That means going into communities with people that disagree with you and, and talking with them and building that trust. We can, you can't do that behind the desk. You can only do that by getting out and going into communities, whether they're progressive or conservative, uh, you know, getting trusted messengers. And we need to build a communications system so that when we see people saying really crazy stuff that has no evidence base, we can push back. And quite frankly, the people that have the time to give the wrong information are out there doing it each and every day for nefarious purposes. And we, as the public health community, need to have a better communication system. It needs to be funded and supported so that we can compete in that environment. It's very interesting. I'm thinking you've got, you've got many challenges in your, your role uh, leading the APHA. The theme of the National Public Health Week this year is public health is where you are. But it seems that too many Americans don't see the connection or trust in public health. And I'm wondering, this is a little like, I don't like Congress, but I like my congressman and woman, right? You know, yeah. um, as you think about the challenge you have, is there 
somewhere else in the globe, uh, another country that you think you could look to as an example of what they're doing right? Is there anything that, as you think about your strategy, that you would blend in from other parts of the world? Well, look, you know, Taiwan um, did uh, this pandemic fairly well. They've got a very comprehensive public health system. South Korea has one. Canada and Britain, um, although they've, they've done some things to undermine their system in the last several years, yeah. we want, we want American, American model system. We love our own stuff, you know? But in the United States, we have a federal state local partnership. And we need to invest in that partnership um, in a way that is going to improve the public's health. Uh, so that means we need to modernize the resources that we have. We need to bring our technology systems into the modern age. Look, there is something called a fax machine. I know that many of your listeners don't know what a fax machine is, <laughs> but that's how you know the old folks used to move paper over the wires from one point to another. And that's how public health was moving our data, mm-hmm. using something called pens and, and, and pencils to write with. Now, my children don't know what that stuff is, you know, and, and my point is, um, you know, everybody has is able to move data around the world much faster than the public health and healthcare system was. And we need to modernize that data system so that we can make decisions in real time rapidly so we can make data driven decisions. We need to have the technology that is available now so that when we get a new microbe organism that enters the community, we can look at its genetic structure very quickly and decide whether it's new and something we need to be worried about. Right now, the technology is there, but it just takes us far too long to do it. Other nations like Britain were able to track their strains very, very quickly. Now, we have built up that capacity in the United States, but it's still not where it needs to be. And quite frankly, we got, while this is happening, Congress is still debating over dollars for public health which in quite frankly, the amount of money they want to put on the table is a rounding error in the federal budget. And so I just think that, that you know, we need to, we need to, if we're serious about this, we need to act like we're serious. Well, Dr. Benjamin, I, I know we can't say that COVID's in the rear view mirror yet. People have been telling us for the last couple of years that there'll be other pandemics in the future that we'll have to deal with. So we're all in learning mode about how we do things better. But we had uh, scientist William Hazeltine on the show in the past. And, He argued for a much more aggressive top-down public health initiative uh, that worked elsewhere to control COVID, would have worked better here, maybe would be better in the future. Not sure uh, all of our listeners even have a good sense of how public health is organized around the country, but what's your thought about that? Focus on top-down approaches versus more state-by-state. Well, healthcare, as you know, in this country is very decentralized, whether it's public health or medical care. And, you know, we, we certainly would benefit from a, a more structured approach until we change this issue called federalization. Our system where public health is actually governed at the local level and the laws that allow you to do stuff at the local level would have to be changed. And we would have to go through a national discussion to change that. Um, Bill is right that you can get a lot more guidance if you get a lot more consistency uh, in the, what we do. But I got to tell you, it's going to be a governance challenge. And right now you saw the governors were really excited about support until it became politically untenable for some of the recommendations that came from the federal level. And then they went off on their own. And so I think that's the challenge we have to have, getting that consensus, keeping that consensus, uh, and providing that support long term. But until we build 
and everyone has agreement on what the, the, the public health system in the United States of the future ought to look like, we're going to continue to be vulnerable to, to help new health threats as they enter the community. Well, uh, you're down in Washington at your Washington office. Big day today in Washington. Uh, President uh, Biden is going to host uh, former President Barack Obama as they talk about the Affordable Care Act. Tell us, maybe underscore the benefit of the Affordable Care Act, its impact yeah. has been on the health and really focusing also on the equity lens of how it's, it's helped transform, still work to be done, the lives of so many uh, people uh, throughout America. Well, you know, we're the only nation, uh, industrialized nation in the world that does not have a system for health care with everyone in and nobody out. The Affordable Care Act has gone a long way to making sure that everyone has quality, affordable health care coverage. Having said that, it also um, has gone a long way in improving the health and well-being of Americans overall. In fact, in, in states which have not expanded the Medicaid coverage in their states, they're not doing as well as, from a health perspective as those states that um, have expanded Medicaid coverage. President Biden um, has invited back President Obama to both celebrate the Affordable Care Act, uh, but to also try to do some things to fix some of the glitches. So there's something called the family glitch, where people um, who are not eligible because of income as an individual, they're eligible, but their family isn't. And so they're gonna try to fix that with tax credits, with the proposal on tax credits. Uh, and then they're going to go for one of the lessons that we learned during the COVID pandemic, where we enhanced the premium support for people in the health exchanges, we gave them more money, and we reduced the cost of healthcare for those individuals. And they're gonna be proposing that they expand that. So I'm excited about that. That's great. I, I don't want to miss this opportunity uh, when we uh, have you with us to give you a chance to maybe just speak about health equity a bit more. Certainly right along with COVID over the last couple of years, there has been a renewed focus on health equity and on what it means and what we can do to assure that everybody in the country uh, has access to health equity. What are you doing at the APHA to keep that front and center, even as we're dealing with all of the other issues around COVID and various other threats? Well, we've certainly recognized the fact that health disparities exist. And tragically, COVID has shown to the whole world uh, the impact of um, um, not having a system with everyone in and, and nobody out where people are treated differently based on race and ethnicity, um, socioeconomic status based on um, gender, based on sexual orientation in many, in many situations. Those tragic um, inequities in our system uh, result in preventable illness and death. And COVID showed us very clearly how that happened. So that people that had to go to work were much more likely to be exposed to COVID and people with chronic diseases disproportionately based on race and ethnicity uh, were much more likely to get really sick and die if they had COVID. Um, and Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign just put out a report um, just the other day, which showed that people who were uninsured were much more likely to get uh, sicker and die sooner um, if they had COVID. So we know that um, socioeconomic status and these quote unquote social determinants of health are important. And the American Public Health Association is pushing on all of those. We're trying to address things like housing that impact health, education that impact health, um, economics that impact health. And now, by the way, voting is now becoming a um, social determinant of health. Um, so we're encouraging people to get up and vote and be part of the process um, because being part of the process determines um, who, who controls the purse strings in our country and who controls your access to health care. And so we're strongly pushing on that. 
we've declared racism as a public health problem, um, with particularly structured racism, uh, and, and trying to do things to create systems and programs for people to address those policies that we know that either help us become healthy or impede our health. Mm, that's great. You know, the APAH, as you know, does so many things. And one of the things it's very focused in and is tracking legislation at the state and federal level. And uh, there are a number of bills that the, the APHA has stated would uh, directly harm transgender people, particularly transgender youth. Are all public health departments on board with your position around that? Well, I don't know if all departments are on board, but I think um, from a moral perspective, um, we have to treat everybody equally. Um, we have to recognize that um, um, access to um, medical services and surgical services um, uh, for all people is important, including people who are transgender, um, and that these efforts to, um, you know, really stigmatize people and take away their, their supports um, is, is really fool, you know, foolhardy. Um, and, you know, we need to leave medicine to the health providers. Um, and um, I'm, I'm very happy to be attorney general if you want me to be attorney general, but I, I don't think that I, you know, I'm the right person to be attorney general. And I absolutely am clear these lawyers um, don't need to be trying to practice medicine. Mm -hmm. um, they haven't gone to medical school. They don't understand the science. Um, and while they're pretty smart people, um, they, they need to, as they say, stay in their lane. Well, thank you, Dr. Benjamin, for your time today, for your decades-long commitment to health and to public health. We're proud to be part of the public health sector as well. We're all trying to do what we can to improve health in this country. And thanks to our audience for joining us. You can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up for our email updates at www.chcradio.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Benjamin. Thank you. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Senator Rick Scott went too far in claiming that Medicare will go bankrupt in four years and Social Security in 12 years. Government trustees project that certain Medicare and Social Security trust funds would become depleted by then, but payments would continue, albeit at a reduced rate. Scott made his remarks on Fox News Sunday when host John Roberts asked the Florida Republican about his 11-point plan to rescue America. That's Scott's blueprint for a Republican-controlled Congress after the 2022 elections. Scott's plan calls for sunsetting all federal legislation in five years, forcing Congress to act if it wants to keep federal programs. It also calls on Congress to, quote, issue a report every year telling the public what they plan to do when Social Security and Medicare go bankrupt. Scott told Roberts, quote, no one that I know of wants to sunset Medicare or Social Security, but what we're doing is we don't even talk about it. He continued, Medicare goes bankrupt in four years. Social Security goes bankrupt in 12 years. The long-term financing of Social Security and Medicare has been and remains a problem, but such bankruptcy claims could leave the wrong impression. 
Neither program is going out of business. The two Social Security Trust Funds, the Old Age and Survivors Insurance Trust Fund and the Disability Insurance Trust Fund, combined would be depleted by 2034, according to the most recent report by the Social Security Board of Trustees. But even if the trust funds are depleted, the program would still collect enough in annual tax revenues and interest payments to pay about three quarters of the benefits now promised. As for Medicare, the Hospital Insurance Trust Fund, which helps pay for inpatient hospital care under Medicare Part A, is expected to be depleted in four years, by 2026, according to the Medicare Board of Trustees. But the continuing income for Part A would be enough to pay 91% of total benefits, the trustees said. The Hospital Insurance Trust Fund is financed largely through a payroll tax, which is currently 1.45% for the employer and 1.45% for the employee on earnings up to $200,000. There is an additional Medicare payroll tax of 0.9% that individual employees must pay on earnings above $200,000. The trustees have been warning about the depletion of the Part A trust fund since 1970, but the trust fund has never been depleted. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Baltimore, Maryland has one of the highest emergency medical call volumes in the country, and it results in a significant number of patients being taken to the ER for conditions that could have been treated outside of the ER. The University of Maryland Medical Center and the Baltimore City Fire Department teamed up in the hopes of reducing unnecessary ambulance trips and hospitalizations. How do we all start to address health issues more comprehensively than simply calling 911, being transported to an emergency department, when that is not optimal care for patients. They created a new pilot program which pairs doctors and nurses at the hospital level with paramedics in the field, bringing medicine right into the patient's homes. So that we co-dispatch a paramedic and either nurse practitioner or doctor to the scene of low acuity calls ask the patient whether or not they would like to be treated at scene. Uh, We then enroll them into our program, register them there, just like a mobile urgent care center. We then treat them at scene, discharge them with the same exact paperwork we discharge them from the hospital. Dr. David Marcosi of the University of Maryland Medical Center says that this mobile integrated healthcare community paramedicine program has a two-pronged goal, reducing unnecessary trips to the ER by delivering right care at the scene. The pilot also seeks another goal, to keep vulnerable patients being released from the hospital healthier, with paramedics doing frequent follow-ups over a 30-day period to ensure that patients are compliant with their medicines or getting enough to eat, greatly reducing the risk of rehospitalization. Once you understand the challenges when we discharge a patient or when patients are seen for low acuity issues, people face just at home to navigate the insurance industry, the multiple providers they're supposed to follow up with, the challenges the individuals face, certainly here in Baltimore, and we're exploring, could we do this for longer, or is there a better way, once we hopefully empower folks, to transition to maybe a lower resource-intensive setting for THS, 
is with transitional health support, the 30-day follow program. Our data demonstrates that the patients who are followed in our program utilize uh, and are admitted to the hospital uh, significantly less and utilize their health care primary care services significantly more. That translates into lower cost to the system from a physician billing construct, from a hospital construct, and oh, by the way, from an EMS construct, because you know what happens? Those patients typically call 911 to get to the hospital. But most importantly, he says, the patient outcomes are markedly improved. The Mobile Integrated Healthcare Community Paramedicine Program, rethinking how paramedicine is deployed in the field, reducing unnecessary emergency room trips, and by the way, making sure that the emergency responders can respond that much more quickly to the true emergencies. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.